Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Benari Poulton. This might be it, but if you get blown up and you come back, you're going to get so much pussy. That and more, but before that, I just want to say, you know, sometimes it feels like there just aren't enough hours in the day, my friends, even when you're working past the nine to five. So if you're still making time consuming uh, trips to the post office, you need a better way. Use stamps.com. With stamps.com, you get the postage you need, the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. It's quick and easy. You'll save time and money with stamps.com, too. It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Plus, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. We use Stamps.com at risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK, that's risk, for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So, Don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. And now, here is one of the greatest of all 14-carat jackasses. Hey, everybody. This is J.C. Cassis. I produce the Risk podcast hosted by Mr. Kevin Allison, who's making a Philly faith at me right now as we speak. Anyhow, I wanted to tell you guys about a company called Modcloth, which only I could tell you about because it's clothing for women. 
ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion that's as unique as you are. And they feature a broad range of styles from the understated to the adventurous, the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the right now. And at ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and home decor. Their statement prints, bold colors, distinctive designs, and vintage-inspired looks add uncommon and unexpected flavor to every moment in your day. Every moment in your day! Use their free mod stylist service for dedicated one-on-one sizing and fit tips and personalized styling support. Now, as a woman with giant boobs, a semi-regular sized waist, and giant square hips, I definitely need that. And I'm sure all of you have weird bodies as well, so the mod stylist would be great for you. I love that everything there has a jokey title. There's the Better Latte Than Never sweater, the It's No Pig Deal tee with a little pig on it. There's the Hit or Myth men's socks that have mythical creatures on them. Another thing I love about ModCloth is that it's basically as stylish as Urban Outfitters or Anthropology, but all the prices are really affordable because there's nothing worse than looking at a site full of cute clothes and then finding out that they all cost $350. Right now, you can shop their latest collection and find your new fall favorites. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com, that's ModCloth.com, and enter promo code RISK, R-I-S-K, at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make Every day extraordinary with mod cloth. Well, we made it through having to listen to her for a couple minutes, so as a reward, now here's the show. <laughs> whoa, whoa, Kids, this is Risk, this show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is John Bryan and Michael Penn behind me now. Holy cow, we just, just got back from Nashville. That was one hell of a show in Nashville, Tennessee. My first time ever in that city. JC and I went together. JC the spokesperson for Mod Cloth, and uh, we got stuck there. We got stuck there. Uh, you know, when you go to a smaller town and your plane gets canceled, the next flight out might not be until the next day. So our eating just went to shit because the South, it's not so easy to eat healthy there. But the people were delightful, and you'll be hearing... A lot, at least, of that Nashville show very soon. The next show we have coming up is in Richmond. The next tour date we have is in Richmond, Virginia. Another place I've never been before. That'll be September 30th. September 30th. Come out and see us, Richmond. Now, we're calling today's episode Curveballs. (laughs) These are three stories where things went in a direction that the storyteller wasn't anticipating i mean it's basically one of those things where we have to get the thesaurus out right 
to look for various ways to say that same goddamn thing. Because how many stories aren't about things not going the way you anticipated? But all that really matters is that they're great stories, and they are indeed. We're going to start with a story that was shared the last time we were in Seattle. A young lady named Katie shared this one. I remember where I was when I first heard her pitch, when she first sent in the recorded version of her pitch, walking around Harlem, right in the summer sunshine this past summer. Isn't it interesting how you can remember where you were when you heard someone telling a story? The trees you were walking by, the breeze you were feeling, the intersection you were crossing when such and such a thing was being revealed in the story. So that in looking back, your memories of stories, you can see how other people's experiences became a part of your life, became memories of your own. Anyway, here she is now at the Risk Live show in Seattle this past summer. This is Katie with a story we call How It's Supposed to Be. So, a couple of years ago, my mom sat me and my two brothers down to have a talk. She had been having these really weird headaches for quite some time, so she went to the doctor. She came back and she said, well, they did a scan and they found all these little lesions all over my brain. And they tell me I have something called primary progressive MS. And I was younger and I start freaking out because all I knew about MS was from TV shows and movies, and I knew it to be this horribly insidious, just destructive force in people's lives. And I start to panic because I'm about to go to college. And my mom has always supported me completely. She has supported me emotionally, financially. I was going to school for acting, and all throughout my life, she had always paid for all my acting classes. She was paying for this very expensive liberal arts college degree that I was about to go to get. She was my rock. And so as she's telling me this, I start panicking and she goes, oh, but Katie, don't worry. It's primary progressive MS, which means that it's mostly asymptomatic. And really, the only main thing they tell me it's going to affect is my short-term memory loss. And that rings a bell for me and my brothers because my mom has always been incredibly forgetful. So we kind of go, okay, well, nothing's really changed. We just kind of have a name for your little quirks now. So I go off to college and I graduate and I move here to Seattle. Every time I call her, things seem great. Like I'll call her and be like, hey mom, can you uh, kick me some cash? I want to cut down on shifts because I want to do this show where I'm playing a flower and a crackhead at the same time. And she goes, oh, Katie, that sounds so great. I'm so proud of you. You're so brave. Here's money. Go find your dreams. <laughs> and then in July of last year, I give her a call to see how she's doing. 
And I said, hey, mom, how's it going? And she goes, oh, it's good. But, um, you know, it's the strangest thing. You know that oriental rug in the kitchen? And I go, yeah. She goes, well, it's missing. And I go, like, what? Like, are you sure you just didn't take it to get cleaned and you forgot about it? And she goes, no, no, no. And what's even weirder is I took it to get appraised a couple weeks ago. Turns out that rug is worth $24,000. And I think somebody stole it. And when she tells me this, I am floored because one, I had no idea that rugs could be worth that much money. And two, that's a very particular and very specific crime to go and steal an antique rug. But I'm intrigued. So I entertain her and I go, okay, well, like, <laughs> who would have done it? And she goes, oh, I don't know. What do you think? And I go, well, the only theory I have that would make the most sense would be the woman who cleans your house. Jane. And the reason why I threw that out there is because Jane was constantly borrowing money from my mom and not paying it back. And when she wasn't asking for money, she was skipping out on shifts, cutting out early, and she always had a thousand and one reasons why she couldn't finish cleaning the house and just generally really took advantage of my mom's very giving and very caring nature. So when I threw that out there, my mom immediately latched onto it and she said, oh, you know what, I bet you're right, because I let her go a couple of weeks ago and she has all the reason in the world to do it and she still has my keys. And so I go, oh, well, yeah, you know, that makes sense, but can't really do anything about it unless we know, <laughs> hire a private investigator. And we laugh about it and I hang up. And I call her back a week later and I go, hey mom, what's up? And she goes, Katie, you'll never guess what I did. I took your advice and I hired a private investigator. <laughs> and they went into her house dressed as a, a fake uh, like service person who worked at the apartment building and they peeked around to see if it was there and it wasn't there. <laughs> and while she's telling me this, I'm laughing, but I'm also kind of weirded out because my mom's always been really impressionable. It's always really easy to get her to do things. But jumping from laughing about it to fully hiring a private investigator within a couple of days was something kind of weird and new. But I laughed it off and chalked it up to her being bored. And then a couple of weeks later, I get this email from a friend of hers. She had gone to stay with her because she was going to this college reunion. And the email chronicled this whole story about how when my mom had arrived in Austin, her rental car didn't have a GPS, and my mom very heavily relies on GPS because she just has a horrible sense of direction. So what she had done is she had just driven around the city of Texas blindly for hours, and in the meantime picked up two total strangers to help her get to her friend's house. By this time it's dark, she arrives to her friend's house and the police are there because my mom's friend has called the police because she's like hours late. And the police escort her out of the car and take her to the side and they go, you know, ma'am, you do know that those two men in the back of your car are well-known gang members in the area and you're very lucky that they didn't harm you. To which my mom says, oh, pff, no, I just, I saw them and I had a feeling that they wouldn't hurt me. Now I hear all this and it sounds like my mom, but it also doesn't make any sense. And it's suddenly really scary. But I shake it off, and the holidays roll around. 
And I go home every year for Christmas. And so I'm on the plane. My dad picks me up. And he says to me, you know, Katie, I think this year Christmas is going to be really great. But you should just be a little prepared that with all the stuff that's been happening with your mom, things might be a little bit different. So I go, okay. He drops me off at my mom's house. And I open the door. And I don't know why but I'm suddenly overcome with just this overwhelming sense of dread. Like my skin suddenly weighs a thousand pounds and my throat starts to close up. And I push through it and I look in the room and I see my two brothers and I run over and I go like, hey guys, what's up? I hug them. And I'm looking around for my mom and I see her. And she's in the corner and she's lost a shit ton of weight, like she's down to 90 pounds. And I'm looking at her and she's looking at me like she doesn't recognize me, like she doesn't know who I am. And so I go over to her and I put my arm around her and I go, hey mom, like how's it going? And she pats my back and just kind of absent-mindedly says, oh, hi, hi Kate, how are you? And this broken little voice. And so I get a little overwhelmed by the whole situation, and I say, okay, guys, good to see you. I'm going to go take a shower. And I go to her room, and I'm looking around, and it's, it's a mess. There's clothes everywhere. I go into the bathroom. There's ants crawling all over everything. There's hundreds of empty pill bottles just splashed all over everything. And I go over to her bed to lay out the clothes I'm going to wear after the shower, and I notice that there are all these stains all over the bed. And it just overwhelmingly smells like urine. And I remember that she had told me a while ago that one of the symptoms of her MS was that she was no longer able to control her bladder. Her mattress was just soaked in her own urine. And I decide to go to the living room because I can no longer handle this section of the house. And I go and I sit on the couch and I turn on the TV and I start putting down my sleeping bag and my pillow because that's where I'm going to sleep and I notice that it also smells like urine because she has been sitting there and can't control herself and that really horrible heavy feeling comes back and I try to do everything I can to outrun it I try going on walks I try taking us out and about but I can't escape it because her memory has gotten so bad that when she talks to people she can't remember things that they said 10 seconds ago so her communication is pretty much just her reiterating the last thing the person said which if you go out in public is very frustrating and all I can do is just get angry with her and shush her and sweep her aside and so pretty much from then on I just decided we're going to just stay in the house we're not going out and so one day I'm sitting on the couch with my mom watching TV and my brother runs in and he starts yelling at her things like why? Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you ask for our help? Why didn't you tell us that it had gotten this bad? And I look up at him and I notice that he's holding a piece of paper and I run over to him and I grab it and it's my mom's bank statement for her main account. It's at this point that I should mention that my mom has always had a lot of money. She was a lawyer and then when she retired she bought a bunch of properties and made a lot of money for herself. And I'm looking at this bank account, and there's only a couple thousand in there, and that's wrong. Because 
there should be way more in there and there's not and it's just gone and the first thought I have when I realize this is oh my god like she pays my cell phone bill she pays my car insurance all that money that she had was going to be my inheritance and now it's gone I don't have anything to fall back on and then I realized how disgusting that thought was. <laughs> so I grabbed my brother and I said, look, we gotta go. We gotta go talk to my other brother. He lives in town with her. Maybe he knows more about this. Maybe he can help us figure this out. And we go over there and we go, how did this happen? Like, was it a pyramid scheme? Was it a con artist? Did someone steal it? Did she lose it? What happened? And he tells us from what he could tell because he had been working with her for a while now to solve this mystery. He said, from what I can tell, she made a couple bad investments. She took a hit during the housing crisis and whenever she needed to spend money, it was like she had this big pile behind her and anytime she needed money, she would just reach behind her and throw it and reach and throw it without ever once looking behind her to see how much she had left. And in that moment, we all kind of looked at each other and we realized that it was our fault because we had always just taken and taken and taken from her without ever once asking if she was okay or how she was doing. And this whole situation happened because we had ignored her. And because I'm not quite done being a shitty human being in this moment, I have a last thought, and that is, every year my family goes out to dinner to this really nice restaurant, and it's my favorite part of the trip because we go and we eat lots of food and drink a ton of wine, and it's a great time. And I think, oh, poor me. We can't go out to dinner because my mom doesn't have any money anymore, and we can't afford it. But my family and I collectively agree to go anyway. And we don't really discuss how we're going to pay for it. We just go. And I don't know if it was being surrounded by all these old memories of having gone there before, if it was the candlelight or all the wine that we drank, but something was lifted in this dinner. My mom comes alive again. She's taking part in conversations and she's like actually talking with us and she starts telling us about all these stories from when we were kids and it's just all so awesome and so amazing to have her there like that. And so the time comes for us to pay the check and the waiter sets it down and my dad puts down his credit card and I look at my brother and he's looking at me with this really mischievous, crinkly-eyed grin. And it's the same grin that my mom has on her face. And he just throws his credit card down and looks at me like, well, what are you going to do now? And I go like, oh, wow. all right, challenge accepted. And I take out my card and I throw it on the billfold. And they take it away to process it. And I look at my brother and I just think, you know what? This is how it's supposed to be. We need to start taking care of her now. All our lives, we've treated her like a human ATM. 
and now we need to start treating her like she's our mother because that's the least that we can do for her. Thank you. I'm blessed with the heart that doesn't stop. My mind's a weather vane that spins around just like a top. Knows what the winds of fortune bring. In the season of the witch, home is a perjury. Parlor trick, an urban myth. Oh, how the circumstances change. This world is smoking steel and compromise and meter maids. I'm going to leave here for too long. Zigzagging toward the light, I'm off to sing my founder's song. This is Risk. This is Connor Oberts behind me now. Guys, I want to tell you, uh, we have a new sponsor who sent me a ton of wonderful stuff. Listen, you don't need to choose between price and quality to get an amazing, affordable shave. You've heard of DollarShaveClub.com, right? DollarShaveClub.com is the answer to prove just how amazing their shave really is. Right now, they're going to give you your first month free to join the club. DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors. They delivered them right to my door for a third of the price of what you'd pay for those those kind of razors they lock up behind the big fortresses in the pharmacies nowadays. I have no reason to go to the drugstore for all that now. And neither will you when you join the club. Just go to DollarShaveClub.com. Pick a razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades. And that's all there is to it. I have the executive blade. Gives me a super, super precise, smooth shave. You know, I have a beard, but I have my neck to shave, my cheeks, my balls. Yes, I have to. And you want a very precise and smooth shave there, my friends. And when I use this, they have this Dr. Carver's shave butter, which is lovely. The blade just goes so smooth through it. They have a lot of other products as well that they sent. They have this amazing mint cedarwood body cleanser, amber lavender body bars. They have this aftershave cream. So I am looking and smelling and shaving like a million bucks. So here's your chance to see why over 3 million members like me love Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all their products. Now you can get your first month of the club for free. Just pay shipping. After that, it's a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash risk. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from our remarkable recent Salt Lake City show, a story that was shared by Jack Lincoln. But before that, the wonderfully talented and super charming Benari Poulton. Benari was a staff writer for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which is gone too soon. 
a comedian based in New York City, and as I think you'll be able to hear, just a wonderful guy. Here he is now with a story we call G.I. Jew. I've been in the military for, as of now, over 16 years. I've been open up to an entirely different world of other people. And, you know, regardless of where I've ended up, I've always tried to make my little corner of the world a little bit better. In the Army, I'm affectionately known as G.I. Jew, which, you know, is hilarious and adorable like myself. But... I've realized it's not just a moniker. There's actually responsibilities that have gone with it. Uh, And when I've been on deployments, I've actually found that I've become a little more spiritual and a little uh, more religious, at least in terms of following the traditions of Shabbat. Uh, When I'm home, I don't really do Friday night services uh, beyond, you know, a quick kiddish with the folks and calling them on the phone and checking in every week. Uh, but beyond that, I don't go to services every week. I do uh, I do the big ones. I do the Yom Kippur. I do Rosh Hashanah, Passover. And, you know, I'll light the candles on Hanukkah. And that's, you know, that, that was the extent of my religious Jewish experience in the States. But what I found was uh, when I was on deployments, having a Shabbat service to go to every Friday night, uh, having a way to sort of get away once a week from everything else that was going on, I found it to be very helpful. And I found it to be very rewarding because it was actually what Shabbat was intended to do, which was to just take a moment, to take a break, reflect, and then get back to work. I found another community altogether within the military. Within the military community, there was this other community of Jews in the military who were having a similar experience to me, but also were different than the majority of people that they were serving with because they happened to be Jewish. And so we had this very unique perspective on things and this unique outlook. And this was a chance once a week to get together and sort of kibitz and talk about it. Within that community, I'd found a little bit of peace in this uh, very... (laughs) very unpeaceful area. There were two prayers we always ended on every Friday, which was one was the prayer for the country, and the other was a prayer for peace. And I always found that to be very beautiful because it was a great reminder of why we were there. This wasn't supposed to be this endless conflict. The end goal was to bring about peace. So one of the reasons why I always went to the services, too, on Friday nights was I had been on previous deployments, and I found that sometimes if you had very few Jews going to services, they would stop doing the service altogether. If no one showed up, they wouldn't do the services. So my feeling was always I should utilize that and show that we could have it. I had been on other deployments, but uh, when I got deployed to Afghanistan, 
it seemed like it was a far more dangerous time. It was post the Afghanistan surge. Things were not looking so great over there. I can tell you my mom was not happy that I was going. This was my third one. Well, I made it through two others. So statistically speaking, when's that wheel going to land on my number? You know, how many more of these can I go through before, God forbid, something bad happens? So all those things were running through my head. And I was talking with a buddy of mine who has a, a thick Boston accent. I'm from Massachusetts originally, so a lot of my friends are massholes. He was saying, dude, you know, this, this might be it, but if you get blown up and you come back, you're going to get so much pussy. I'm like, thank you for putting that in my head. Now I have to worry about getting blown up. And, and also, there are easier ways to get pussy. There, there's so many easier ways to get pussy, but I appreciate that. And, and I'll, I'll keep that in the back of my head. <laughs> we had one guy who, uh, in the middle of a rocket attack, had hit the building. And he didn't get directly hit by a rocket, but he got hit by a lot of the shrapnel. And that was a building that was right next to the building where I worked. I remember we visited him in the hospital. And this is interesting. Every time we had someone get hit or hurt, if they were unconscious when they woke up, one of the first things they would always ask is, is my dick okay? I don't know what, I don't know what it was, but everyone was very concerned that their dick still worked. That, that, was, that was almost universal. <laughs> we occasionally had a rabbi who would come for some of the services. And what would end up happening is when he wasn't there, someone had to be designated as the Jewish lay leader. When I was in Afghanistan, it fell to me at some point uh, to become the Jewish lay leader, which just meant I was a liaison between the other chaplains and Jewish service members who might need anything. So I very clearly remember going out on one mission. Uh, we were going out to an area in Kandahar province where we were opening up a school. I remember we were driving in our armed vehicles down the street, and you're sitting there. You're in full battle rattle. You're going through crowded areas and there's trash everywhere other cars are going around and everything is a threat at this point you're just looking around saying is that a v-bed is that a suicide bomber now one of the reasons why i wasn't too nervous is because we have scout teams that go out ahead of us so i was part of a convoy uh, we were going to meet with some afghan officials there we had some generals and so what happens is a team goes out ahead of you and does route clearance and they go through and they make sure that the route is clear. Uh, if they find anything, they dispose of it or they, they blow it up and they make sure that everything's all safe and clear so that we could pass through. And we roll through the streets, we get out, and the last mile, mile and a half, we walk through the village. And as we're walking, you really see it's so different from anything that you really see in America. We're walking through and there's probably like seven-year-old kids working in garages, fixing cars and putting together carburetors and working on motorcycles. And they're like little seven-year-old grease monkeys. And you're like, oh man. And as we're walking, they sort of start following us. And now we're surrounded by kids and you give them pens and candy and things like that. And uh, they'll just take stuff off you too. You have to be very careful because they'll, they, see, <laughs> they see us coming and they just want whatever's hanging off you. When we get there, these kids are the kids we're opening up the school for. So what a school meant to them was, oh, we show up. There's a little ceremony. They get some book bags and some books and notebooks. And there's no curriculum. There's no teacher's association. There's no real school principal. We're really in the first stages of even setting this up. And phase one is just have a building that is a school. And then we'll get to the next step. And so... You know, when I was there, I really got the sense of, oh, my God, we have so far to go. And again, this was about 2011. So we had already been in Afghanistan for 10 years. And that I felt like we were 
trying to work hard to help this village and these people. But by the same token, I couldn't help but feel a little disillusioned and a little overwhelmed by this sense of what are we doing here? Why am I here now? Can we even make a difference here? And that's sort of what I was feeling at that time. And I remember a couple days later, I was in my office. I was on a night shift, so I was working late, and and the phone rings. Uh, I said, uh, Sergeant Polton, uh, we had uh, two soldiers. Uh, they were doing route clearance. They hit an IED, and uh, they were both badly injured. You were identified as the Jewish lay leader, so we need you to come down because one of those soldiers was a Jewish soldier. So we need you to come down and say whatever prayers you say. They were going to do a little ceremony, give these guys their uh, purple hearts, and uh, they usually have a chaplain, but because he was a Jewish soldier, they needed the Jew. <laughs> and the rabbi wasn't there, so it fell to me. I'm not a rabbi. I go to services because I found it helpful for me. I wasn't there to start doing rabbinical work. As I hung up the phone and I, I you know, I, I have to go head down to the hospital now, I just started thinking about what a fraud I was and you know, this is actually something pretty major. I have to go down and provide comfort and solace to a, a soldier who's just been blown up by an ID, and he's expecting a rabbi to show up, and he's going to get me? And all I could think of, too, is what if, God forbid, something happened to me? Who, what stranger is going to show up at my bedside to provide comfort and solace for me that is way out of his element? And as I walked over, I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know what he was going to look like. All I had been told was that the other guy that he was with lost both his legs. And I had visions of like mash in my head. You know, a lot of activity, them running around like, I need 15 cc's of morphine stat. Damn this war. You know, and uh, when I got there, it was very calm. I got to the uh, combat support hospital. It was actually very calm. I had a lot of professionals walking around. It looked like, uh, you know, normal hospital that, uh, that you would find here in the States. Fantastic, fantastic medical service. And when I got in, both the guys that had been hit by the IED were awake. Uh, and they were talking, and the the guy with no legs was flirting with the nurses, which I thought was a good sign. Um, but I was blown away by the fact that this guy was even conscious, never mind flirting. The one who uh, had lost his legs, he actually, aside from that, looked totally fine. He was stabilized. He was in great condition. Uh, the Jewish service member had taken some shrapnel to the side. So his face was a little burned. He had some metal in him. He was very fortunate because it was the type of thing that would heal and he wouldn't have a lot of scars. Um, but it looked very bad at the time. As soon as I saw them both, I just, I couldn't think of what an asshole I was. How could I be so selfish right now and think about what I feel like? Like these guys just got hurt. These guys just got blown up and here they are. They're not feeling bad about themselves. They are not pitying themselves. In fact, both of them just wanted to know if they'd be able to get back in the fight. They just wanted to get back out there and make sure that they were able to help their fellow soldiers. And that was remarkable to me that their first instinct was, when can I get back out there because my guys need me? That's when I realized that I was part of this larger community in the military as well, that we were all there to take care of each other. You don't know when, that's, when it's going to come around to your turn, but they take care of you and you take care of them. And what I found out was that these guys, the route that they had been on, where they hit the ID, it was the same route that I was on a couple days earlier where we opened up the school. It was in that village, actually along that street. 
their route clearance wasn't just for us. It was also for the people of the village because when IEDs were planted, it's really just to create chaos. When those IEDs are planted, they don't know if uh, U.S. troops are going to be going over them or some kid just walking down the street or some farmer. So their job was just to ensure that that area is safe every day and that uh, people like me were safe when we travel down those roads. That really struck me, and I, was, uh, I felt proud to be in their presence. And I felt very proud that I was able to, in some way, do something for this guy. So I brought a yarmulke. I had a little uh, prayer book. And, you know, I told him who I was. I said, uh, hi, I'll, uh, I'm Sergeant Poulton. I'll, I'll be your rabbi today. He laughed. He said, oh, man, I haven't even been to services since my bar mitzvah, probably. Uh, he said, my grandmother try- was always trying to get me to go. But I guess uh, he said, I don't even know why I put Jewish on my dog tags. But uh, he said, I'm kind of gl- glad I did. Um, I didn't even know they kept those kind of lists. And then we joked a little bit about how Jews aren't real big fans of being put on lists. And uh, after that, I said, uh, so, you know, if you'd like, I can, we can do a little prayer for healing and uh, we can do a little prayer for peace. I said, they're going to give you a, a purple heart. <laughs> so they want to come over and, and do this if that's all right with you. He said, oh, yeah, I guess, sure. <laughs> and I put a, uh, a yarmulke on him. I remember he, he looked at me. He said, uh, my, uh, my grandmother would be uh, really happy to see me right now. And I looked at him with the with the shrapnel and the burn face. I said, "Ah, I don't know how happy she'd be, but uh, but but I'm sure she'd be very happy that uh, you're at least you know uh, you're wearing a yarmulke. Um, <laughs> I'm sure she could leave the rest of it behind." And as we were talking, you know, he said, "I, I was glad." He said, "The doctors told me that uh, it looks a lot worse than it is. The thing I was most concerned about was that my dick would still work." And I said, you know what? That's been pretty much the consensus for everyone I've talked to. Is uh, that's the thing that they're always concerned with too. So you're in, you're in good company, my friend. And uh, we did the little ceremony. I did a prayer for healing, read the prayer for peace, as I had been uh, every Friday night prior to that. But this night, it actually, it was a moment when I realized I wasn't just saying the words. I actually meant it, and I really wanted this to be a prayer that had some sort of impact and power. And I, I thought that maybe if we all stood together at this moment, this is what we were working toward, we did have a chance to bring about peace eventually. At that moment, I realized that the services, the, even calling myself G.I.G., wasn't just, it wasn't just me who was getting something out of the services. I realized that it was also an opportunity for me to, in a moment, provide something for someone else as well whatever that might be. And uh, everyone left. We kept talking. He looked at me and he, he wanted to know, you know, how bad he looked. I'm like, well, it's not, it's not looking so good. He's like, oh man, what are they going to say when I go back home that I can't go home looking like this? And I looked at him and I just, I thought of the, uh, the most appropriate words of comfort that I could give him. And I looked at him and I said, dude, you're going to get so much pussy. <laughs>
So when I was 10 years old, my mom gave me a box set of all the Lord of the Rings books. And that was my introduction to magic. It was amazing. I loved it. And what really brought it home for me was I was Mormon. I immediately made the connection between magic and miracles. And oh my God, magic is real. And tied up with that is a thing called patriarchal blessing. So if you don't know what a patriarchal blessing is, you've got to know what it is for this story. And what it is, is it's the thing that happens in the, in the Mormon church where an old man is called a patriarch and he has given the power of God to lay his hands on your head and tell you your future. It's fortune telling. Okay? So now I remember I was 14 years old and I could feel the weight of this man's head on my head. I could feel my head being warmed by his hands. And I was just thinking, please, Heavenly Father, please, Heavenly Father, let me get something good. Because what I was waiting for was a spiritual gift. Another bit of magic. Spiritual gift, there are lots and lots of spiritual gifts, but there are things like the gift of prophecy and the gift of wisdom. And I just thinking, please, Heavenly Father, give me a gift, give me a gift, because I need that superpower. And then the man had his hands on my head and he said, and you will receive the gift of healing. Yeah! (laughs) That was the best damn gift there is, because I could lay my hands on somebody's head tell them to be healed and they would stand up and walk just like Jesus, just like the apostles. I received the gift to work miracles. This was important to me. As a kid, I was alone a lot. I didn't have the worst childhood ever, but I was very lonely. I didn't have very many friends and I was a lot older than my siblings. And so I had a lot of bad days. I was the fat kid. I was teased a lot. But I knew I could come home. I could drop to my knees and God was there for me. I would tell him about my bad day and tell him about the people who were mean to me and God was there. He was someone who was always there for me. And I would daydream about Judgment Day. And I could see myself. And I'd be all dressed in white, you know, because, you know, it's heaven and Mormon and stuff. And so I'd be all dressed in white. And I would go up, and there's God on his throne. And he sees me, and I'm humble. You know, my my head's down, you know. I'm all humble. And he walks, and he steps down off of his throne. And he comes, and he takes me in his arms, and he whispers, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That was me, you know, that this is what was going on. Now, I, I wanted to be a dad more than anything. And when I was 31, I was blessed with a beautiful baby boy. He had flaming red hair, and he was just perfect. I knew what it meant to be a dad. I wanted to teach him everything. I wanted to throw a baseball, even though I didn't know how to play. And I wanted to teach him how to be a man. But he was a really difficult kid. He would cry all the time. He slept very rarely, and when he was awake, the only way to get him to stop crying was just to walk around and around and around the house. It was absolutely exhausting. The doctor said there was nothing wrong with him. He was just a crybaby. (laughs) (laughs) When he was two years old, they couldn't say that anymore. He was missing all his milestones. He wouldn't talk. He wouldn't babble. He didn't make noise with his mouth except for to cry. He wouldn't make eye contact. He wouldn't say, Daddy. He showed no interest in anything. He would look at you, but it was this blank stare where it meant nothing. He saw nothing. He wasn't blind. He just, there was nothing there. For those of you who know autism, he was diagnosed with very severe autism. And the specialists said, no treatment no cure. One doctor in particular, I remember sitting down with him and he very kindly leaned forward and he said, listen, your life is going to be miserable. Why don't you do yourself a favor? Just put him in a home right now and move on. 
Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> but, you know, they said there was no cure. I didn't despair because I knew something they didn't. I had a secret. I had the gift of healing. I was going to cure this kid. See, I realized in that time that this was my test, capital T test. Now, one thing, it's not exactly doctrine, but a lot of Mormons believe that everyone faces a test of faith, a massive test of faith where if you survive this and you stay faithful, you're going to heaven. And if you don't make it through, well, not so much. It's, you're going to have a hard life. Sorry. That's just how it works. I knew this was my test. I knew that this was my destiny. I had the gift of healing. I'd been given this son with no cure. And so I knew that this is what I was meant to be. So I started preparing. Now, in the Mormon religion, these rites of blessings and other kinds of sacraments, they have very specific language that you're supposed to say. So I spent a lot of time memorizing them. I spent a lot of time fasting, because, you know, that's what you do. Um, and I prayed. Oh, did I pray. Heavenly Father, please help me to fix this poor broken boy. Help me fix Robbie and make him a real boy. I'm here. I need your faith, your, your power. And please help me make my faith perfect. See, that's another thing about, about healing is not exactly doctrine, but everybody believes that if someone is given a blessing to be healed and it doesn't work, well, that means somebody's faith was imperfect. Either it was the person who was giving the blessing didn't believe enough, the person receiving the blessing didn't believe enough, or there was somebody in the room <laughs> whose faith wasn't quite perfect, and that's why it didn't work. So I knew that my faith had to be perfect. Now, with little kids, it doesn't, it, it, their faith doesn't, doesn't, take, it doesn't matter in, in the Mormon faith because anybody under eight is automatically perfect. So I started preparing. I had it all figured out. No one was going to be in the house with me at all. It was going to be me and Robbie. And after months, after months of preparation, I found myself in a place where I had no doubt. I'm telling you, I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to heal this kid. I had perfect faith. I knew it was going to happen. This was my destiny. I had the gift of healing. I was going to work a miracle, and I was going to heal Robbie. So I set everything up. I, I had the living room. I cleaned it. I had a Book of Mormon, a Bible set out just perfectly so, you know, the energy was there. And everybody was gone from the house. And I took a chair, and I sat it in the middle of the living room to make it nice and formal. And then I took Robbie by the hand, and he's two years old, just walked him over to the chair, and I lifted him up, and I sat him in the chair, and then I got ready to catch him. Because autistic kids don't sit still. They hate sitting still unless they're doing something that they want to do. So I was already, I was going to catch him, and I was going to put him back, and I was going to keep doing it until he would sit still so I could give him this blessing. But he didn't move. He just sat there with his hands folded in, in his lap. And I thought, damn, this is a sign this is a sign of the righteousness of what I'm about to do, and God is telling me it's going to work. Ah, oh, I felt good. I felt powerful. So I walked around the chair, and he's still sitting there with his hands folded in his lap. little two-year-old boy just sitting there. So I put the, the holy oil on his head. I brought my hands out, and I laid my hands on his head. And then I started saying the words of power. Now, see, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I thought this out. Remember how I like to fantasize about Judgment Day? I was fantasizing about this for months. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was going to kill my son. I was going to walk around to the front of the chair. I was going to kneel down. I was going to look up at him. And I was going to say, hello, Robbie. And he was going to open his eyes. He was going to look at me right in the eye with love. And he would launch off the chair into my arms and say, thank you, Daddy. 
See, he never said my name before. He never said that. He never said a damn word. But he was going to say it that day because I would heal him and he would know it was me. So here I am, got my hands out on his head. I'm saying the words of power. I'm doubting nothing. Nothing. I knew this was going to happen. I get to the right part and then I declared, be healed and be made whole. And I finished saying the words. I took my hands off his head and you would not believe. My soul was 10 times the size of my body because I knew I had passed my test. I had worked a fucking miracle. Of course, I didn't say fuck then because I was <laughs> But I had worked a miracle. And remember, I knew what was going to happen. So, hands are off his head. I walk around. I kneel down in front of Robbie. I look up at him and I say, hello, Robbie. And he opens his eyes. And he looks at me, straight through me, with the same blank, nothing, stare, the same complete disinterest in me. He got up, he brushed past me, and left the room. I was crushed. I was dead. I had failed. I had failed my test. My son is as good as dead. I didn't know what happened. I I had all the words memorized. I said them all right. I had the fucking gift of healing. I, I had the power of God. I had done everything right. It should have worked, and it didn't. So the next day I went to work and there was a friend I worked with who was a, 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 a guy who was a lot older than me and he was a giant of faith. He was a man of God that I trusted implicitly and I went into his office and I said, John, here's what I did. And I explained the whole story that I just told you. And he said, well, obviously you didn't have enough faith. There was something wrong there. I said, no, listen, perfect faith. He said, well, obviously someone in the room didn't have enough faith. And I said, no, listen, there was nobody there. It was me and this kid who's perfect. And he said, well, then... The answer is obvious. Is God's will that he not be healed? And then the next thing he said nearly drove me to insanity. He said, God gave your son autism. He wants him to be autistic to test your faith. This test is not, do you have enough faith to heal your son? The test is, do you have enough faith to continue to love a God who would do this to your son? I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, how do you wrap your mind around that? I had loved God my whole life. I had dedicated my entire life to Him. I took solace, and I enjoyed the fact that I was an outsider because that demonstrated my devotion to God. I would wrap myself in the cloak of Mormonism and feel good about it because I knew that I was destined to be His good and faithful servant. I couldn't just take his word for it, so I went to all the church leaders, everybody I knew. I went to them one by one, telling them my story, and every last one of them told me the exact same thing, including my father. This is your test to see if you will love a man, a God, who would curse your son with autism. And I'll tell you what, the answer was easy. It was no. (laughs) Fuck no. My God is a God who, who loved me, not somebody who would play with my son like that. And as I started questioning things, all the beliefs, all the things that had made me who I am fell through my fingertips, and I felt lost. You know, was, was God there for me all those times? Obviously not. I mean, if you, if you follow the Christian beliefs, every Christian 
religion out there believes that God is unchanging. So if he's going to be this asshole right now, he's a, he was all along. He wasn't there for me. <laughs> and destiny? There's no such thing as destiny. It's just shit happens. And I was just gone. And the thing that was so precious to me, that knowing that magic was real, was gone. My friends in the leadership would come to me and they'd say, you just got to trust God. But you know what? I don't. And those friends weren't friends. They were gone. They stopped returning my calls. Uh, even my mom gave me a nice little twist of the knife. I was sitting on her bed. Uh, we were talking. And I was telling her about how I was struggling and I was depressed and I didn't know what to make of my, of my life. And she said, she looked at me and gave me that look that, you know, moms give you when they're concerned about a child. They kind of cocked their head a little bit. And she said, aren't you worried about not going to heaven with your kid? Don't you want to be with Robbie in the next life? Eventually I started making friends who didn't care what I believed. And a few of them are here today. Uh, none of those others are here. <laughs> and, we, and there's this thing that they do, it's called Friendsgiving. And it's what we do in, in November. So Thanksgiving is for all the families. Well, Friendsgiving is for the friends. And I was sitting at my first Friendsgiving a number of years ago. And there were all these people. This huge table was just full of people. And I was smelling the food. And I was listening to the wine glasses. And people were looking at me and smiling. And I was chatting with them. And I was listening to that beautiful roar when you're in a room with friends. And it's just all the voices blending together with nothing but love. And it, I got it. I finally got it. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with destiny. It's me. I finally realized that I'm not a failure. There was no test. There was no giant faith. It was just me. I'm just a man trying to do right in life. And as I started from that moment learning to love myself, I started learning to love Robbie. See, all along I'd been taking good care of him. I was a good father. But he was an echo of the son that I had lost. I never saw him for who he was until I saw myself. And then I realized he's not an echo. He is Robbie. His autism is him. And it's really difficult to care for an autistic kid. It changes your life in so many ways that you can't say it's easy without being a liar. But the sacrifice is worth it. I wrap myself in the mantle of being Robbie's daddy. I lost my belief in magic, but I actually did find my destiny. It's not to pass some kind of test. My destiny is to love him, care for him, and help all of you and everyone around him know that he is whole. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Walkman behind me now. This song reminds me so much of U2 circa 1980, the I Will Follow era, which I think of quite fondly. Hey, you know, uh, something that JC and I did while we were stuck in Nashville, we did one of those Facebook Live things. So if you don't follow us on Facebook and Twitter, we're at Risk Show. And I want to do more of those sorts of things where we can actually be in conversation with you in real time like that. Because that was really fun. So follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And don't forget, we are looking for Halloween episode pitches right now. Pitches of stories about the holiday itself or just really frightening situations, ghost stories, all that kind of stuff that we normally put on our Halloween episodes. Pitch us. Or if you know someone who has a really scary story, have them go to risk-show.com slash submissions and send it in. Now... There are so many amazing Risk Live shows coming up. On September 28th, 2016, we are back at the Bell House. Going to be an amazing show. September 30th, we're in Richmond, Virginia. Come out and see us, Richmond. September 30th, Richmond, Virginia. November 11th, we're in New Orleans. New Orleans, you've got to pitch us. The theme is Legends. But, of course, we're very loose with our themes, so you can pitch us damn near anything. And the pitches can go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. But come out and see us anyway, November 11th, New Orleans. November 12th, we're in Baltimore. Baltimore, Maryland, my first time there as well. Pitch us as well. That theme that night is Wounded. Chicago, Chicago, November 18th. That's going to be a hell of a show. We are part of Chicago Podcast Festival. The theme that night is Frenzy. Please pitch us. Let anyone you know pitch us from Chicago. And I think that's about it. Folks, if you're ever unsure about how to pitch us or unsure, you know, about how to go about creating a story, you can have one-on-one training with me. Or you can take one of our video courses in your own time. You could hire us to teach your staff storytelling for business purposes. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.